Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Alex Genoir. How are you doing, Alex? Very good, John. Did I pronounce it right this time? Not at all. Excellent. <laughs> and Phil Oakley, how are you doing? Very good, thank you. I'll get there one day. One day. <laughs> There is loads of news this week. There is still fallout from the, the whole Woodford escapade, which we discussed at length last week. A uh, very popular podcast, that was. Uh, in fact, we've, we've continued um, in the magazine to look at Woodford and particularly uh, a lot of the shares that he's now having to sell. Uh, and actually, some of them we're going to talk about today, potentially. It's a very conversational British podcast because I think we're going to talk about three things that, there are, that, that Britain is obsessed with. Property, cars and the weather. Oh, and, and putting out the bins. Yeah. Uh, is that we're putting out the bins? Yeah, if you like, yeah. Yeah, Pennon, which is the subject of your column this week. Yeah, it's the other, the second one of my column this week. Yeah, the, uh, the other half being uh, uh, a second look at bowling. You looked at Hollywood Bowl last week, or was it the week Yeah, before? I looked at Hollywood Bowl last week, and then I looked at 10 Entertainment Group, which trades as 10 Pin. And um, cut a long story short, you think that's not quite as good as Bowl as a business, but it looks very interesting in terms of it's performing well and it looks cheap. Yeah, and it's one of the shares that, that in fact, was in the Woodford Income Fund that he's had yeah, to sell. Yeah, he sold down quite a lot, so that's um, that's also makes it interesting. I think the selling's over now, so... Maybe these shares can make a bit of headway. Yeah, uh, and, and actually some of that full selling has created a bit of a, a buying opportunity. The other thing that Neil Woodford is very exposed to are the house builders, and we're going to talk about that. But sure, let's, let's stick to, the, to putting the bins out. Yeah, so looked at, um, at Pennon, which is a, essentially a, a water company that owns Southwest Water, and it also owns a waste business called uh, Viridor. And um, Pennon is a very well-managed company. It is um, probably the best managed water company um, at the moment in terms of delivering on its financial and customer performance measures. And it's earning reasonable money as far as the regulator will allow it. And it, is been, it has been growing its dividend at the uh, fastest rate of growth of all the main water companies for the last 10 years. And it looks like it's, it looks like it continues to do so. What regions is because Walter's still a regional business, isn't it? Yeah, so, so. South, Southwest Water, Southwest. so so yep, right. Dorset, Devon, Cornwall, never short of water, and uh, owns, owns Bournemouth Water as well. Okay, little one. So as you as you allude to, Walter heavily regulated business. Yep. The the, uh, the the kind of profits these sort of companies can make, like energy, are capped. Yeah. Um, what is it that makes Penon slightly so, different? So Penon has done what. Um, a lot of regulated utilities have failed to do, which is to build a sizable and growing unregulated profit stream. This has not come easy, though, for, for Penon. Um, Southern Trent had a business, a waste business called Biffa, which it has spun off, which is now now floated. Quote, floated company, quoted yep. company. These businesses have gone through a bit of a rough time because of um, new regulations restricting the use of landfill and also uh, recycling has gone through a tough time as well. Um, but what um, Penon has had the foresight to do and backed it with significant amounts of money is investing in these um, energy recovery facilities. Now, in simple terms, what this involves doing is taking household waste that you put in your dustbin every week 
separating the stuff that doesn't go to landfill, doesn't go to recycling, and they burn it, and they use that to create heat, steam, to generate electricity, to generate heat. They then clean up the gases that are given off, so only clean stuff and water vapour goes into the atmosphere, and then the ash, which is left over, gets sold into the construction trade. And this has been doing very well. They've got um, 11 facilities on the go or under construction. Seven of them are up and running, three of them are ramping up, and then we've got another one near Bristol, which is due to start operating in two years' time. And and these sites, unlike the water business, can they be rolled out across the country? Or is it constrained to the to the kind of operating area of its water businesses? No, no, no. It's, it's all over the country. Um, it's all a question of whether the economics stack up. So what you need is you need to generally, what's, what's good about this business is that they get a contract uh, with a buyer that might be a local authority or businesses, the facilities last about 25 years so you get a, so you sign up a long term contract for collecting waste burning waste generating the electricity back into the grid and you get a very steady and predictable earning stream from this do they have planning problems because i remember them trying to build one of these out near us yeah they, and that's i don't think that's happened to this day they are they are difficult they are difficult to get through, but these are not these are not to be con- confused with old-fashioned waste incinerators. Mm. Um, I think that the case that they're making now, in terms of that they are relatively clean, um, clean technology, and um, a source of cheap electricity for businesses, is underpinning the decent growth here. And so profits here were next to nothing five years ago. And the cash profits of this business now are getting close to a couple of hundred million. And they're going to keep going up. And because the investment is peaking, there's a lot of cash flow going to come back here as well. So you marry that up with the water business, which looks well-placed. I think the regulator's probably going to be quite tough, but I think Pennon's well-placed to keep delivering. Add on this um, this energy business and you've got still a decent dividend growth story here from, from a share that's yielding nearly 6%. And um, I, I like, I very much like this. It's sort of off my kind of investment sort of style for like the kind of quality shares. But looking at, at an income and parking to one side, the, the, the sort of scare stories that Jeremy Corbyn's going to come along and steal this for less than they're worth, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, this this is a this is a good story, I think. Yeah, interesting. Um, I mean, it, it it looks like I mean, it's not quality in the sense that quality has been discussed of late, but it looks like a well managed business, and, yeah. and and to me, that's a, that's an indication of quality. It has moved into uh, uh, new areas that it needed to move into as a regulated yeah. business. Yeah, I, it's I, not it's not making stonking returns. You know, if you look at if you actually look at the because it's predictable, you can work out what you can earn over a 25-year life. So you, you calculate something which is called the internal rate of return, which looks at the cash you spend to set these things up and the cash that you get back. And the return is about about 11% after tax in in nominal terms, eight, just about 8 9% in real terms um, before inflation. So that is a decent return on investment. And the predictability is a very valuable thing. Yeah, yeah. And so you've got, Something 
the water business generally, once the regulatory review is out of the way, you've got a lot of um, predictability, stability on this company where the dividends are, I think they've got a very good chance of keeping their record going, of growing their dividend more than inflation. And you've got a 6% or 5.9% starting yield on this. And um, there's not a lot of good news in the utility sector now. I think this is an exception. Excellent. Move slightly away from our very British topics of conversation, talk about value, which is the, the theme you've you've looked at as the lead piece in your alpha report this week. Yeah. And Alex, uh, you can come in here because what you've done here is look at Halma, which is what we would generally determine as a quality business, which had results this week which were fantastic. Yeah, they were good. Uh, and you've compared that with something which which perhaps you would not describe as quality. Alex, why don't you start by talking us through Halma's results this week? I mean, Halma's also is quite a difficult interview. Um, I mean, there are a few things more done talking about journalism, but it's it's quite hard to actually, in t- at times, interview chief executives of companies as a helper just because firing on all fronts. So, I mean, Halma is split across infrastructure safety, environmental analysis, medical and process safety, um, all doing well. Um, they operate quite a shrewd um, M&A strategy. I was just with um, a financial advisory firm, actually, that um, helped sell three companies uh, to Halma, um, and people only have good things to say about them. Um, but in the, in the question of value, there is no value to be found, really. I mean, they've they raised their dividend by it's for the fortieth year in a row by five percent or more, but the yield is pretty well, non-existent. Um, record revenues and profits, sixteenth year in a row. Uh, but I think we'll feel. I think we're in agreement. This isn't a one to buy. I think it's a really good business. Mm. You know, the thing, the thing that I like about this company above all else is that it is a it is a problem solving business. It is tapping into a lot of themes that are current and are likely to be very relevant going forward in terms of making products that make people safer or make businesses safer, cleaner. You've got a medical business there which taps into sort of growing, aging population, very high uh, rate of research and development coming into new products. You've got acquisitions which complement these themes. And these these are businesses that are very difficult to copy because a lot of them are safety critical or they're underpinned by regulation. So it's not something that someone can come along and and copy and take Halmer's lunch away. And this is one of the main reasons it can earn very good profits. But I think the thing that concerns me, as Alex has said, and something that I've been banging on for quite a long time now, is the valuation of this share just gets higher and higher because people are waking up. This is actually a really good business. And they think, I want to own this good business. I can sleep well at night. I can see the consistency of the growth. And I'm prepared to pay a very high price for it. Not me, mm. but but investors. But you know, I think there's a danger here of people becoming a little bit complacent. And I think there's also a danger of people on our side of the fence when we look at this of overcomplicating what we're trying to do as investors. And essentially, the way to sort of rationalise this and get it back on a sensible footing and put some common sense back into this is just look at what you know valuation means. And valuation really is, rather than price, Valuation is essentially how much cash you can strip out of a business over its remaining life. And the divergence now between these so-called quality stocks and maybe and value stocks has arguably never been bigger. And value stocks 
cheap stocks which trade at, trade at low multiples relative to their dividends, profits, cash flows. Uh, it, it is very out of favour, and value fund managers are, are underperforming significantly. But if you just simplify this, and so we we took Alma, which is basically growing underlying rate of about 10% organically from its underlying business. And I looked at another business called Ramsden's, which for those of you listeners who aren't familiar with this is a... Which I would hope many of our listeners wouldn't be, really, apart from as well, investors. <laughs> speak for yourself. <laughs> Nothing wrong with Ramsden's. Nothing it wrong is, with it as a business? It, it is, you know... You'd hope you wouldn't end up in there. It's Well, you might go and buy your foreign currency from there if, you That's go, true. if you're going on holiday. But it's, it's foreign currency, uh, jewellery business buying and selling of precious metals and good old-fashioned pawnbroking. Mm. And it does pretty well at this. But there isn't a lot of growth in it. And the shares trade on a very cheap valuation of about nine times earnings. So what I've done is just just turn it around and say, look, what would you earn per £100 if you own these businesses outright and you got all the income back to you? So if you, let's say you, John, own... Ramsden's and I own Halmer. You get nine pounds sixty-five back for each hundred pounds that you invest in at the current share price. I get two pounds sixty-three. Your your profits don't go up and down at all. Mine grow by ten percent a year. And if you look at this in terms of Halmer, it would take Halmer twenty-three years at ten percent growth to generate more cumulative profit than Ramsden's having no growth. And I think that kind of very simple but quite powerful way of looking at this signals to people how expensive some of these companies have become because it's very unlikely that Halmer is going to grow 10% organically without buying other stuff for the next 20 years. But it's pretty good at m and Yeah, it's a key part of its strategy. And also to... Just to add to the point you made on regulation, actually having spoken to the chief executive um, Andrew Williams this week, um, nice where, guy, met him. Nice guy, yeah. Um, really enjoyed the conversation years ago. Where I, I feel, and I apologise to the readers, I've written the phrase "U.S. China trade war" about a thousand times this week. Um, but actually, that is, that's the nature of the sector. This know. is the nature of the sector. <laughs> I won't apologise for it, but there's actually sort of a big rise in regulation in China. Regulation is growing, and company of this nature. It's it's a pretty good growth market compared to its peers. So maybe the US less so right here, but yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think it's um it's a nice company to watch, but maybe not buy into. Oh, but 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 I, th- I think what we're saying is hold. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, if, hold, you, if yeah. you are if you are a long term holder, yeah, then, oh, yeah you wouldn't get you, rid of this. You wouldn't get no, rid of you it. No, no, you wouldn't. No. I mean, the thing, what would you, what on earth would you replace it with? No. Ramsden's. Silly <laughs> <laughs> oh, me, silly me. Yeah, Ramsden's. But no, nothing. No, nothing. You know, nothing. Mm. Well, I'm sure there will be people, you know, joking aside, who would say you should. Yeah, I, I mean, this is a this is a common problem you face, Alex. I think there are there are a number of very high quality engineers in yeah. your sector, which are also very expensive. Like Spirax, yeah. Sarco being a good example. Yeah, Spirax is very similar, and there are a lot of good quality companies like Renishaw, which great underlying metrics, but having a tough time at the moment. Again, in the east, Renishaw actually are a very private company. They're very difficult to get hold on to. Both analysts and journalists are quite frustrated by that. But yeah, it's a difficult sector to tip at the moment. Let's get back to our very British topics of conversation: cars. Because we had some we had some numbers from Pendragon this week, which were horrible. 
And we and we've talked about we talked about it last week in the context of Auto Trader, which is doing very well, whose results were in the magazine this week. And we talked about how a company like Auto Trader, we should look at it separately from what's happening in the underlying market. And we we suggested that the underlying market wasn't doing too great. And Alex, you wrote a big feature on what's happening in mm. automotive recently. We were planning to call it Carmageddon until I realised that was the title of a computer game. Oh, really? So, yeah, it was, yeah. So we called it Gridlock. Um, yeah. Because actually, I think from an investment point of view, the car industry is really difficult to navigate at the moment. Um, so let's let's come back to Pendragon. Let's talk us through that because we've never had a I chance mean, to do it. Well, I mean, cars, for one, to, to investigate, you have one candidate um, in the UK, that being Aston Martin, which we discussed before, to the cars themselves. So you have to look down to the supply chain. There's some really good companies out there, like Ricardo, for example. But again, there are questions over that valuation there. Um, AB Dynamics. Yeah, AB Dynamics, a uh, good company. Senior. Senior, Senior GKN. Yep. GKN, and those those guys begin to straddle into aerospace and defence as well. But yeah, I mean, car figures, uh, SMNT routinely publishing really bad figures, um, pinning it a lot, and actually becoming more and more vociferous about the threat of a, of a no-deal Brexit. Um, Isn't that the biggest problem in the car industry, though? I mean, it seems to me that we're a sort of te- at a technological tipping point here, mm. and, and not just technological, but some of that technological um, uh, uncertainty is based around the environmental issues that, that, yeah. that, that, that surround the car industry as well. Sure. Um, we're told for now that um, you won't be able to buy pe- new petrol diesel cars I think 2040 and the Labour Party today have come out and, and sort of bring, bring a lot of environmental targets uh, forward. Um, oh, no, I know. Theresa yeah. May yesterday has. I mean, there was there was the big announcement sort of, of the uh, zero, zero net carbon emissions by twenty fifty. Yeah, this is sort of a final throw at an environmental legacy from uh, Theresa May. Um, I, I, I would say, <laughs> Bill shaking that, his yeah, head. Because uh, yeah, it's consumer. Yeah, consumer behaviour is changing. More and more people living in cities. Um, I would say there's a very interesting graphic. Um, uh, I've I've seen do the rounds on social media. So it's definitely true. But um, when we talk about commute, the commute. Um, I think it's more to illustrate how kind of southeastern south middle class uh, complaints about train prices are. Um, with the exception of London, Cambridge, Ox- London, Cambridge, Edinburgh, and Glasgow, um, maybe maybe Cardiff, um, the majority of people take the car to work to work every day. Yeah, yeah. Um, the idea that electric vehicles and even hybrid vehicles can come along and disrupt the car car industry immediately, we do not have the infrastructure to support that. This country, I would say, is not serious about electric vehicles. Not not remotely serious compared to countries like Germany or China. So they're not cheap enough either. No, you no. Know, there's a hell of an outlay for the the consumer to to buy an electric a pure electric vehicle. And I think that's that sits at the heart of the troubles that the certainly the distribution mm. industry is likely to face. Uh, that that actually. I think a lot of people are not convinced that this is the final iteration of no. of electric vehicle technology. That that they might, if they buy something today, it might be obsolete um, in three years. Yeah, time. there's a chemicals company called Johnson Matthew that I like a lot that make the materials for car batteries, and they've they've told me before we don't think that full electric cars are what consumers want or need at the moment. The hybrid cars can cater both to city travel and to country travel, and they're well placed to cover both. They can provide other materials for both. Um, I should also say that. You know, when we look at petrol and diesel cars from an environmental perspective, um, electric vehicles are held up as the replacement to that, and that seems crazy. And um, if we took at Volvo, 
said that they want by 2025 to have all their cars some kind of electric capability. And to do that, they need to source more kind of battery materials than currently exists in the supply altogether. Volvo's not that big a car company, they'll say. You know, I, I've recently been to Chile. Uh, our colleague Alex Hame has been done the done the same trip to the salt plains um, where all these areas are earmarked for lithium mines. There is not the supply one for all these car companies to build electric cars, and it is going to be an ecological and social disaster in these countries. Mm. I think you make a very good point. I think the, the, there's a lot of grandstanding going on here by politicians, but actually the practicalities of getting all this into place for the masses is incredibly difficult and incredibly expensive, and it's going to take a lot of time. Do you think that grandstanding is having an effect on the market as it is today? I mean, Pendragon, what is the cause of their problem? I don't know. It seems to me. It seems to me that you know, if you look at if you look at the results of the you know the UK. I mean, Pendragon is a global car dealer, not just a UK car dealer. Um, you know, if you look at the results that have been coming through from um, the main the main dealer dealer companies and also company like Motorpoint, um, they don't seem to be having massive problems with used car stock. They seem to be turning their used car stock into cash at reasonable profit margins pretty well. Um, Pendragon dropped a complete clangor, and I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the figure I wrote is that the the stock of used car vehicles went up 23%. Um, you know, stock, you know, is the enemy of any retailer. When when the stock goes through the roof, you know that you're to get rid of it, you're going to have to slash, or probably going to have to slash, the prices and destroy your profit margin in order to get rid of it. Similar similar thing going on at Ted Baker as, as, as well, but obviously not not to do with cars. But it's um, you know stock positions are are can be lethal. Is this the profit? Is this a sign perhaps of a sort of weakening consumer confidence that uh, people are not as willing to sort of flash the cash as they were? Well, it's been a credit driven market, hasn't it? You know, you've you've seen seen the rise of the personal contract plan, the PCP statistics banded around saying that nine out of ten of every new car in the UK is on is on PCP or some kind of finance and you look at you know the cost of cars is going up incomes are not going up at the same pace and the dealers and the car manufacturing industry have been saved by PCP but it's like anything that's driven by debt it relies upon an income stream to support it and I, I, I can't prove this, but I've wondered for a long time whether this kind of market, which is so credit-driven, is now actually running up against the buffers in terms of the ability to support monthly credit payments. And also, I think there's bound to be, as, as people talk about the, the changes in technology, we've also got issues with new emission standards where the manufacturers are taking a lot longer to get their cars approved and through the through the testing procedures which which, which is, must be something we see with the engineers sure absolutely um i mean my question is do you think there's something uniquely british about this so when i covered trifast um this week as well then as well industrial fastening supply and they have actually seen their automotive revenues grow around just over six percent in every market with the exception of the uk where they fell just over one percent i i think britain is different 
and I've I've had conversations. I, I, you know, I was over in France, France the other, you know, two three weeks ago, and you know, people people do the culture of car ownership over there is much different. They don't tend to buy big cars. Same in America as well. You know, they're not these people are not. It's only because the number plate system identifies the age of your car in the UK, and people. Get very, a lot of people get very conscious about this, not really want to be seen driving an old banger. Um, I, I, I drive an old banger, how dare you? <laughs> you do. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, this drive, you know, the number plate system, you know, used to change every year, now changes every two years. There's always been a way for the, for the retailers to drive the sales of, 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 of cars. And... Um, that that is that makes us quite quite different to to you know go to America and people quite happily drive older cars in France they drive older cars but here you, you know you have to go on the road and you know there are a lot of not many old cars on the road no i think mine is about 12 years old yeah yours will be well, yours will be an exception it's yeah it's very expensive to tax now but big big old diesel but there is you know there is a cycle and it's you know I don't want to get too too into this because it's actually a very complicated. You know, you're dealing with like a mini credit cycle here, as well as a natural replacement technological cycle. It's compl- quite complicated stuff. Well, I think, and I think this was what sat at the heart of the feature you wrote uh, a couple of weeks back, Alex. That there are so many sort of diff- moving parts that are converging right. on this this one specific industry. That it's really hard to work out what's going on. Sure, really hard. Sure, it's quite a. I, mean, I dealt also with the self-driving uh, car question as well, and that that seems like a, a very city-based solution. And talking about the sort of moral, co- the, sort of the insurance angle to it, and also, I'm sure you're familiar with the trolley problem, sort of philosophical dilemma of you're standing on a train bridge, a uh, train is heading towards two people tied down. Do you pull the trigger and move the train onto one other person? Um, so sort of utilitarian question, if you will. Um, right, throw it out there. Would you pull the trigger? Yes or no? I'm not going to answer that question. You're not going to answer. That. You wouldn't do it. You wouldn't deal with it. But this is this is something that's been put to but, self-driving car. But AI might have to which, answer uh, that question. To which uh, one insurer told me, "Well, we just stop the car," I've which stopped. is just a I've third option. These horrifying, <laughs> horrifying images in my head of you know the, what the future will bring, and it'll be like bumper to bumper driverless cars going around town like a sort of snake. So I'm just thinking about I'm just all I can see is Buster Keaton film in my head like someone ties with a trash. But, <laughs> but I think I think there's I think there's a lot of interesting yeah. things going on. You know, I think I think the Pendragon thing is quite interesting because let's just say for that there is you do get weakness in the used car market. And you know, you are gonna get more used cars, PCP cars that are three years old, so you're still not quite through the peak yet. Mm. So the stuff that was bought three years ago is going to start coming back. And if we start getting a decline in used car prices, which we're not seeing yet, this actually then increases the gap between the new car price and the three-year-old price, which is essentially the cost of your PCP plus interest. So it will make new PCPs more expensive because the depreciation rate will go up. Yeah, I mean, t- t- uh, reading the piece that Tom Dines wrote on Pendragon's uh, profit warning, um, a lot of other uh, motor retailers fell in sympathy with this yeah, story. So, so I think people are interpreting it as the canary in the coal mine. Could be. Um, although you, you, the, the other conjecture is that it could be a company-specific issue, that it just simply hasn't managed 
its stock very well. But why it's worrying is because it's a much bigger source of profit than new car. Yeah. Used cars, there's a better margin on it, but you've got to turn your stock quickly. Should, should, we, uh, should we move on from cars? Yeah. Uh, let's talk about uh, the other British obsession, housing. Yeah. Uh, now, there's a really interesting uh, and actually uh, chock full of incredible information uh, report out today from the National Audit Office, which is a review of the Help to Buy scheme. And I think you spent the last uh, couple of hours reading through much of this Not film. Not that long, but yeah, okay. I've, I've had a good look. Enough time, but but it echoes a lot of the things we've been saying about this this scheme for some time, um, which is possibly reflected in some of the results we've been seeing from the house building sector this week, in, including Crest Nicholson. Um, but there are some serious questions now being asked of this scheme. There are, and rightly so. And, and by some very important people, not just us. What's taken them to so long? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I mean, this is, it takes know, a long time to do the is, research. This is a crazy scheme that has not that has not really done a great job uh, expanding housing supply. It has done a bit of a job, particularly in the last couple of years, but it, it has not really solved the problems that we have in this country with housing and, yeah. ha- and housing affordability. So, so I think the report concludes that it uh, has increased home ownership and housing supply which is a good thing, um, and will continue to do so, and I love this caveat, provided there is no significant change in the housing market. And that's a big caveat, I would say. <laughs> yeah. um, it's also talked about a couple of um, potential problems. At the point when the market turns down, uh, the taxpayer could lose that significantly because obviously the government has, has a big stake in the UK's housing stock yeah. now. Um, and it also has an opportunity cost in tying up a great deal of financial capacity. And its broad participation, participation criteria have allowed some people who did not need financial help to buy a property to benefit from the scheme. And I think that's pro- possibly mm. the biggest problem with it. I think it was saying, wasn't the figure 63%? I think there was 63% of the buyers didn't need this. I think I think it also said that 4% of, of people who access help to buy were on household incomes of £100,000 or That's more. That's correct, yes, that is correct. But the issue for me is this, and this is something that those of you who follow me on Twitter and have read stuff that I've written elsewhere will be positively bored with now because I just, I've just banged on about this. This is incredibly risky for the house building sector, the quoted house building sector, which is pretty much, with a few exceptions like Barclay Group and Telford Homes, has become hooked on this scheme. And what we're seeing, or what we have seen, is that they have reaped a windfall from the government putting money in people's pockets to buy houses and this is the 20% equity loan for houses below £600,000 in value. That's 40% in London. And you get a five-year interest-free equity loan on this. This has pumped money into the new build housing market. It actually pumped it into the existing market as well until they stopped the scheme in December 16 for existing houses and continued it on new build. But what's happening is that the premium, so the the, the price of a new build against an equivalent size and located existing build has gone higher and higher and higher. Um, NAO is saying 15 20%. I've seen 15%. My own kind of research locally where I live suggests 10 15%. So 15% is a good ballpark. And this, when you're a builder and you've been buying this on land that you bought five, six, seven, eight years ago, is a massive windfall. 
And the problem is, and we're beginning to see this now in the results of the house builders, is that that cheap land has now come out the land bank and you're now buying land or builders are now buying land based on the current selling prices in the market. Now, this is where it gets risky. If 40% of this new build market is on help to buy, which is pushing up prices to unsustainably high values, the problem is is for the people who are currently or have just got onto this scheme, if they want to sell quickly, then the buyer, the next buyer of their house doesn't have a 20% equity loan or 40% equity loan from the government because they're not a first-time buyer. So you start getting back to 95% mortgages, perhaps, or whatever, which are freely available, which to me questions why help to buy exists in the first place, and they will start valuing a help to buy house which had a 15 20% premium based on its second-hand value, which is 20% less. And I've, I've said before that I can see this becoming or could become some kind of mis-selling scandal. Yeah, so, so the NAO, uh, in its summary, in fact, in its, its, its very high-level executive summary, says property owners could face the trap of negative equity exacerbated by the new build premium. Yeah, and if, but if this filters through into the second-hand market, if we get a, a general weakness, then you should always remember that house builders' profits are geared plays on the value of their land banks. And the value of their land banks, which is essentially their net asset value, um, moves a lot more than changes in, in house prices. So there's, there's generally a, a relationship of gearing of about two and a half, in some parts, three to one. So if house prices go down 10%, the land bank falls 30%. And it works both ways. There's a huge gearing to house prices in here. Now, no one's calling that yet. But the problem is, is what happens to the builders? when the help-to-buy scheme ends. So it's going to end for all buyers, all new builds in March 2021. And then for new builds, it's going on another two years until March 2023. What happens to the premium that the the builders can sell their houses for after that? Because they then become come back into the very risk-averse, rigorous valuation criteria of banks and building societies giving out 95% mortgages. And the danger is they say that the, 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 the prices that they're selling on, the prices of the, of the houses on the land they're selling on are too high. And that's when you start getting profit risk for the builders. And this is probably one of the reasons, this is, I think this is beginning, this risk now is beginning to get factored into house building share prices. And a contraction in, in profit margins as well. Yeah. We saw with Crest Nicholson because, this week. Exactly, because we've got the build cost inflation, which is running at about 3 or 4%. And what we're seeing now is that ha- actual selling price inflation, because affordability is getting stretched, even with help to buy, um, it's very difficult for house price inflation to offset that cost price inflation. So yes, you're, you're seeing so you're seeing margin pressure, and you're also seeing crazy proposals like that of James Brokenshire's of young people should be able to raid their pension. Oh, yeah, that's just oh, yeah, thanks for reminding me. Yeah, my DC pot's about forty pounds a month. <laughs> I don't know what it was. <laughs> yeah, just 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 make one purse, make two things worse at yeah. the same time. <laughs> Sorry, I've got no pension left because I I put it into 
my Barrett developments, new build or whatever other builders are available, of course. But. Yeah, I, I don't think we've mentioned that in the magazine yet. So thank you for bringing that up because it is absolutely mental. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the worst policy ideas I've but, ever heard. But again, in, but again, in a crowded field. It is, I think. But what it's, what it's saying here is that the powers that be are not, de- they're dealing with it from a demand side, hmm. not a supply side. You know, we need to build more houses that are affordable. We don't need to put money, debt, in people's pockets to push the price the prices up so that the house building sector can make windfall profits. Windfall profits. And, you know, there's going to be I think the I think they're saying that there's going to have been about twenty five to thirty billion put into help to buy when it's finished. That's that's money that could have been spent elsewhere. Well which is what the NAA NAO talks of as the opportunity cost. Yeah. I mean what what we need to go back to is, you know, you look look at what happened up until about forty years ago where, you know, local authorities actually got involved in building stuff and um no one seems to want to do that. But that seems to me an, an obvious place to go, perhaps in a slightly different way. Uh, but that might be a better use of taxpayers' cash. Well, who knows what new ideas our next Prime Minister will have, whoever that may be. <laughs> um, I said we talk about the weather. I can't remember why we were going to talk about the weather. Earnings risk. Earnings risk. Is yeah. it a real earnings risk, or is it just retailers blaming the weather for other stuff? I think there's always there's always been that. But I, I, mean, I mean, we were chatting before this podcast, before we began recording, but you actually think that this 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 awful weather that we're having could actually present a, a material, a real earnings risk. If it continues, yeah. I mean, if uh, you're also comparing it with last year. So we had a, you know, but this time last year, sort of end of May, beginning of June, the weather turned and it was fantastic. Hot summer, this helped, well, people blame the hot summer for not, for people not buying stuff mm. as well. People so always blame it. You get used to this after 20 years of financial journey. Yeah. People blaming the weather, but, whatever weather it is, you know, for something or other. If you look at, you know, the drinking industry, so the pubs, the uh, soft drinks, they had a great summer, you know, last year. I know there's the World Cup as well. That'll get that'll get blamed for something as oh, well. No, I, no, I, I mean, a flooring business, I'll spare them the embarrassment of naming them, but on, you know, on, on the call, on the record... Said, oh, well, the hot weather and the Football World Cup stop, cup stop people buying floors. So I can see that, actually. You don't want the flooring men in, do you? When, when, you, the when you got a football on 24-7. <laughs> <laughs> but these things, you know, these things are predictable. Yeah. Well, the weather isn't, but the World Cup is known about quite, yeah. quite a few years in advance. <laughs> it gave a boost to certain sectors, and particularly the, the sort of pubs and pubs and soft drinks companies. You know, if if this continues, then they're up against pretty tough comparatives, and I, you know, they are a large chunk of their profits are concentrated in you know the summer months, and it's just something that that's got me thinking that you know this weather's not a good start to their peak selling season, and of course, of course infrastructure as well. I mean, you can't build anything if it's chucking it down. So that's true. Yeah. Well, I await the weather-related profit warnings with bated breath. Um, Alex, there was one thing you wanted to touch on before we uh, we wrap up, which was yes. the uh, goings-on at Scarpa. Yes, uh, a very sticky situation for this adhesive product specialist. Um, the Scarpa, well, adhesives, both in the, in the healthcare and in, more industrial space. Uh, we're going to focus on the healthcare. Uh, they're in a legal battle with a company called Convitec, a medical technology group. 
over a contract that Comatech have pulled out of prematurely. So just to just to step back to well, September October time um, in October. Scarpa acquire a company called Cytogenics Wound Management, which is owned by a company called Acelity, and enter into a five-year agreement to produce wound care products uh, for Acelity. Then in May, we hear that Comatech are pulling out of their contract with Scarpa. They've argued that Scarpa's acquisition, um, they've acquired effectively a competitor of Comatech and it's breached their agreement. Um, they've also filed a complaint in federal court um, in New Jersey asking for a declaratory judgment, basically a, a legal to 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 yeah to confirm the company's right to terminate and Scarpa is suing um it's a big deal for Scarpa so to put the context Scarpa made revenues of three hundred eleven million pounds last year this contract expected to hit twenty twenty revenues and trading profit by twenty eight million and thirteen million respectively it's a pretty chunky stuff it's a pretty it's, chunky uh... now it gets more interesting so. Scarpa's chief executive, a man called Hujai Chai, apologies for the pronunciation, but that's wrong. That's all right. Yeah. That's what we do on this show. Yeah. <laughs> he, um, he was due to step down uh, from his role as chief executive after 10 years at the helm, um, widely respected uh, chief executive. And he has since reversed that decision. He's staying to fight. I mean, I was told by the company that he's also going to help pursue the healthcare strategy or whatever, but he's staying to help fight Comatech. It's a bad time for the chief executive to leave. And then it gets more interesting in that Scarpa's housebroken, Numis, have observed in a broken note that we note several mistakes and factual inaccuracies in the court filings from Comatech, not least an assertion on several occasions that Scarpa acquires Cystogenics and therefore breached the non-compete clause. Well, Scarpa have technically acquired a manufacturing facility, but Comatech contend that they had a, basically a non-compete, an exclusive deal to produce goods for them. So, yeah, it's really interesting. Both companies are in a pretty sorry state. Comatech have issued a couple of profit warnings over the last few mm. years. Um, they've initiated quite recently sort of $350 million turnaround plan, got a new chief executive in place. They are a sell tip. And Scarpa, similarly, we've downgraded them to sell just because this is, I think this is one to stay one for a few months. So I don't currently have a timeline as to when this could be resolved. Um, and it's not wise to speculate. And as this, you know, becomes more and more of a legal issue, it's more harder and harder to get information out of both companies. But yeah, it, it's a very interesting one. It's I think it's um, it says a lot about companies' various, you know, exposure to certain contracts, and also I think uh, it's an interesting the role of of the house broker here. I mean, they've also said a new have made the point of Comatech targeting eighty million dollars in cost savings. Um, the benefits of bringing this contract back in house must presumably outweigh the potential financial impact if Comtex court action fails. So it sounds like a mess. Yes, <laughs> and we, 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 we've always warned. I mean, one of the things we've always looked for at AIM companies is is exposure to mm. or overexposure to single contracts, single customers, and I guess this is a perfect example. Yeah, of of, of what that that sort of damage yeah. that can do if if one of those those relationships. I mean, one thing bad. I would say is that you know there will have been. Conversations between these two companies, Comatech won't have just one day turned around six months after and said, We're pulling the pin out of this. Not like so, a, a Trumpian style so, way of doing business. So, but yeah, one to look out for, um, one we'll be staying close to. Um, very interesting story. All right. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Phil. Let me just talk you through what else we've got in the magazine this week. We are looking at inflation. Uh, Philip Ryland has written about the switch uh, from RPI to CPI, what that means. And uh, and there are many things that that affects, particularly pensions, which I know that some of my readers have written to me about in the past. Uh, our sex focus looks at uranium, which uh, I'm sure that anybody who has watched the recent Sky series Chernobyl will approach with uh, with trepidation. But it's 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 a really interesting commodity, uh, and, and despite that that television program, a very interesting sex with a long term, big long term future. 
As I mentioned earlier, ours is looking at blue chip quality momentum. Let's see how long that lasts. Uh, lots on Neil Woodford in this issue. As I say, we looked at some of the companies that have been affected by his uh, his share sales. Uh, we're looking at, at uh, his other fund, Income Focus, in the personal finance fund section. They'll no doubt talk about that uh, themselves this week. And, of course, there's a cover feature, which is looking at the idea of uh, rent extraction. Companies that make too much money. Is such a thing possible? Very much so. It goes back to the whole the idea of regulation, that companies that, that can find themselves in a position where they are making a lot, a lot of money and regulators some, sometimes feel the need to step in. It's, there is maybe... it's a very good article. I, I had the privilege of reading it before it went out. It's well, a really, really good article. Well, you were going to add something to it, but I think we've added that on this podcast in, in recent weeks. So, uh, yeah. So, Need, I've, I've kind of uh, revisited that ground in, our, in my editorial. You this have. Week. You so, have. yeah, pick up the magazine, All Good News Agents. Uh, too easy, why you need to be wary of companies making too much money. Uh, thanks again, Alex. Thank you, Phil. And thank you all for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week. <laughs>